So not too much happening in our world right now. Seems pretty, seems pretty chill. I don't know about you, but um, the uh, if, you, if you missed last weekend, I just shared some things that were on my heart. And um, this week, I've had a lot of really good conversations with many of you. And uh, the reality is, is it's, it's just a very difficult, difficult season. And I think it's an important season for us to think about. And before I jump into Ecclesiastes, I just wanted to, uh, I mean, I just, yeah, I got, maybe you were like me and you got to a point last week where it was just overload. Uh, the emotion, the, the heaviness of everything we were seeing in the news and, um, and feeling. I mean, I think many of us were feeling it. Um, I've talked to a few of my African-American pastor friends that are um, in different places of the country and just how they're processing things. Um, and it's been painful and emotional. And um, I've also been in touch with plenty of our Arvada PD. Um, and I just want you to know that they feel just as brokenhearted and um, in pain that, that this has happened. And, um, and I think many of these guys and gals, uh, you know, they, they feel pretty vilified right now too. And so we've got, there's just a lot of heaviness in the air. Um, I was reminded this week, I actually read a line that I'll share with you. Um, but, you know, sympathy, empathy, and compassion are, are, are different things. Sympathy is, I feel bad that you hurt. Um, empathy is, um, I can relate to your hurt. But compassion is when I allow your hurt to hurt me and burden me, and your burden becomes mine. And I've been thinking a lot about compassion this week because uh, that is part of our, of our role as followers of Jesus. And because J Jesus is the personification of compassion and, and all throughout his ministry, it talked about Jesus had compassion on them and Jesus um, suffered with them. And one of the lines that I read this week, and I just think is really powerful, is this. Uh, the author said, compassion is allowing someone else's heart to walk around in your chest. And what this does is it implies that the pain of somebody else becomes our pain and their joy becomes our joy. And there's so much, like I said, happening in our country and in our world. And if we are truly followers of God, if we're the people of God, that we must seek the heart of God in this moment. And I think that that's the most important thing. And so here's what that means. And um, it means we need to spend some time listening and hearing stories and not sharing our opinions. It means uh, that we actually may have stuff to repent of as the people of God. 
of where we've missed things and where we've overlooked. Uh, we had a great conversation Thursday night with our small group. And we just talked about the fact that by nature of us being human, we all have some under the surface biases. And we don't know where they came from and how they got there, but we have them. And it's not something that, you know, I want you to feel guilt and shame about. It's something that I think that it's really important for us to seek to understand and to name in our lives. All throughout scripture, God called the people of God to humble their hearts. All throughout. He said, if my people would just humble their hearts. And so my continuing call for us as a church is that we would do that, that we would, we would humble ourselves, that we would listen, that we would let God break our hearts for our neighbor and, um, and really see the things in our lives that, that aren't what he would want them to be. And this really leads into what we're talking about today. Because this passage in Ecclesiastes is a weird one. It's, it's kind of upsetting in many ways, especially in light of everything we're talking about. Um, the writer is, we believe, a writer in probably the 5th or 6th century BC. Uh, many people ascribe this to actually being Solomon. Um, I don't. I think this is an uh, ancient Near East uh, way of, of creating authorship and showing authorship using somebody else's life. Um, and so the author is actually using Solomon's life um, as kind of like an autobiography. And he's looking back at Solomon's life, and he's using Solomon's experience um, to write a story of wisdom. And the first line of, of chapter two says, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure, enjoy yourself. And what's interesting about this is Ecclesiastes as a whole is exposing all the impulses that you and I, you and I have in life to find meaning. So every single way we try to find meaning and find ultimate satisfaction and find um, just uh, peace and joy and fulfillment, all of it, uh, what he calls under the sun, meaning on this earth, on the horizon, all of it is meaningless. Meaningless. And two weeks ago, we talked about wisdom as the first thing he tried. So the teacher talks about the wisdom and learning and making sense of things and becoming an expert and, and, and finding cer certainty. He said, all of that will prove meaningless. All of that will not work. And, and then what he does next is he says, I will let my heart pick what it wants to pick. I will let my heart um, not um, keep anything back from life. He says, I will test it with pleasure. And, and basically, he says, there's got to be something out there to fix what I feel in my heart, in my life. And so there's two assumptions the teacher makes. The first one is, 
I can't find it here. I can't, I can't find it with what I have. I have to go there. I can't find it here. I have to go there. And the second assumption the teacher makes is if he finds it, he will be full and content. So I can't find it here. I have to go there. If I can't, if I do find it, I'll be, I'll be good. I'll be satisfied. And so he dives into this whole thing and he dives into pleasure and satisfaction. And the problem with all of this is you can see the, the language in it used with the pronouns. He uses I, I, myself, <laughs> you know, and he, he uses all these things to talk about his personal, like he is the center of all of this. And he seeks out everything he can find for himself. He says, and whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure. So he says, I did not hold back. And you can use that, your imagination on that one. I mean, he just went for it. Um, it. It talks about how he built great things and he designed great things. And he had experienced beauty and the aesthetics of everything he had built and experienced. And then Verse seven, it says he bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born into his house. And he had power over people. Um, and in the ancient Near East, this was all over the place. The, the subjugation of people to do things that you wanted to do, you wanted to have done, but you didn't want to do themselves, yourself. And so people would do things in order to do the things that they wanted to do, they would get people to do the things they didn't want them to, they didn't want to do. And so he had power over people. He had leisure. Um, it says later that he had so much gold that the silver was worthless. So he had all this money. And so when you think about all the things listed in here, and you can go back and read it, entertainment, sex, beauty, money, power, accomplishment, status, some people search their whole life for just one of those things. And the teacher says he had all of those things. Like he had it all. And it says, you know, and behold, all was vanity. All was a vapor. And a striving after the wind. Meaning there's no, you, you, you can't keep it. And there was nothing to be gained under the sun. So according to um, a bunch of research and empirical studies, uh, most people are pretty happy most of the time. That's according to some research. I know, how do you research that, right? Um, the problem is, is many of these researchers say we most of us operate under a bad understanding of happiness, or at least uh, a, a term that doesn't have a whole lot of depth to it. So they, are, they started asking people what their definition of happiness was, and it came, down to, it came down to this. Listen to this. Simply being okay or having fun. <laughs> okay? Just simply being okay or happy and fun. There's a guy named Jonathan Haidt. And I don't know if you're familiar with this book. It's called The Happiness Hypothesis. Anybody heard of this? It's pretty fascinating. He says that we have a thin layer of, of the definition of happiness 
and and a genuine lack of experience experiencing happiness and he wrote he wrote this this is so good he wrote we are unhappy and we are generally unhappy about being unhappy but it's fine <laughs> i mean i may just read that again i mean let me know if this sinks in we are unhappy and we are generally unhappy about being unhappy but it's fine why is it like that why uh why do we experience this weird sense of happiness and unfulfillment at the same time he says that we have conflicting desires he says we're we're like these uh schizophrenic people when it comes to happiness he says that we want to be successful and we want to have a great family life at the same time right anybody ever experienced that you want to be successful, but you want to have a great family life. We want sexual freedom, but we really want deep intimacy and we want people to be faithful towards us. And, or like, I've heard this one a lot. I want a high level degree and I want to travel the world. And these things are like, they're at war with each other. And there's not much order to the things that we want in life. Um, there's a great author named Francis Spufford. Uh, he's a British guy, and he wrote this book called Unapologetic. And he says, you and I, we are beings who, whose wants make no sense. They don't harmonize. We are beings whose desires deep down are discordantly arranged so that you truly want to possess and you truly want not to at the very same time. You're equipped, he says, you realize far more for farce or even tragedy than happy endings. He says that we have these desires inside of us that are actually at war with, our, with the other desires and we're actually more equipped for a tragedy than we are for a happy ending. Or to quote Sigmund Freud, whom we all just love to read. He said, the best anyone can do is reach a balance of discontents. <laughs> so this is all really happy stuff this morning. Anybody feel like on top of the world now? <laughs> He says that, I mean, ultimately what these authors are saying is that we, we're the problem. That we actually desire all these things, much like the author of Ecclesiastes, we desire all these things, but they make no sense. They actually war against each other. And the crazy thing is, is like when you stop and think about it, there's something in you that won't let you get away with that. Either you're crazy for needing it or the universe doesn't offer it, like the satisfaction we want. And the problem is, is we have these potential traps that we put. Some, some of times we try to pursue satisfaction at, at all costs. We have this ambition. We believe we can have it and it's just not in our hands yet. Uh, and then somewhere along the line, we get disappointed. 
sometimes we become a cynic. I was walking in the park the other day and this guy had this black shirt on with big bold letters on the back and it said, everything you believe is a lie. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, that's about, that's about right. That's about cynicism right there. Um, and then here's the trap that a lot of us American Christians fall in. We, we become the kind of moralistic hedonists. We, we say, it, uh, if you just have some moral moderation, you'll be satisfied. And I remember uh, the days of uh, youth ministry conversation about sex before marriage. And the big conversation was always, hey, if you wait till you're married, you will, you will, you will not, I mean, you will, you will just automatically just be so fulfilled in your life. And you ask most married couples that, and, and there's just this, this kind of like subtle giggle, right? Like there's just like, mm. and so we, we've played this moral moderation game in many of our churches. Um, and the teachers goes, goes on to say that it doesn't matter if you're, morally moderating your life or if you're just a hedonist like the teacher and going for it you're gonna die in the end that's that's literally what he says you're just you're gonna die in the end he says that it's vanity either way he's like you could use wisdom or you could go for it in hedonism and either way you're gonna die Augustine, uh, Augustine, I like to say, I'd rather say it that way. Oh, I just dropped my notes. Hold on. Augustine, uh, in his book, Confessions, um, talks about this quite a bit. Like his story, um, actually the book, Confessions, is very popular. It's, it's almost like one long prayer of, of Augustine. And um, he's this second century... Uh, North Africa, sorry, third century North, North African bishop. And um, he says this in Confessions. He says, talking about people, for they go their way and are no more. And they, and they rend the soul with desire that can destroy it, for it longs to be one with the things it loves and to repo repose in them. But in them is no place to repose because they do not abide. So basically what he's saying is we long for things and we try to put ourselves and our soul into things, but in the end, it doesn't work. Much like the author of Ecclesiastes says. And, and what I find so fascinating is he goes on later on and he says, our souls are restless, our hearts are restless until we get it until we understand who God is, until we find our joy and our hope in God. And so the question is, can there be a pleasure that continues to surprise and does not wear out? Is there something that does not disappoint? And according to Augustine, it's the enjoyment of God. Now, for many of us, that sounds very spiritual, and that sounds very, you know, very church, very Christian. Like the answer to a Sunday school question is Jesus, you know? And 
for some of us, it's like, oh, well, yeah, I'm supposed to believe that experiencing God will satisfy everything for me. And the problem is, is that we, we know that and we can say that and we can think that in very Christian terms, but you and I have disordered loves. Our, our loves are out of order and our loves are warring against each other. And then we come to church on Sunday and we say, well, I need to love God more or I need to, I need to trust God more. And the problem is, is that um, God wants to do more in your heart and in your life than strengthen your belief or strengthen your and I's knowledge of the Bible. God wants to do more than that. And we can talk about the fact that, um, and these are great things to talk about, that the, the things that we own and the things that we have don't bring us satisfaction. I mean, it's, it's the important things in our lives, right? That, that our objects should be more sacramental. Those are the ones that are important. I was reading a book on the sinking, actually I was listening to a book, there's a difference, on the sinking of the Lusitania. And uh, there's, a, there's a guy on this, uh, that it, part of the story that this really happened, he was a book collector in New York and he was taking some very, uh, very, very valuable books, including a signed copy with, with notes in it from Charles Dickens, uh, A Christmas Story. And he was taking it back to, to England to sell, and it was going to be worth a lot of money. And as you know, the Lusitania is sinking, and this guy goes back to his cabin, and he grabs, the first thing he grabs is these pictures of his daughter. And he doesn't have time to get anything else. And he talks about, uh, after surviving the, the sinking, um, how glad he was he grabbed these pictures. And it's because these sometimes there's objects in our lives that are sacramental. They have meaning because of the people they're attached with, right? Um, and, and this idea that our relationships should be covenantal, right? Our, our relationships are, are, are really important because when we see our relationships as covenantal, that's what brings the most meaning, even though they're the costliest things in our lives, because we find pleasure in being with each other and, and relying on each other and, and, and encouraging each other. And yet at the same time, um, we bear each other's burdens. And sometimes people uh, let us down. And, and sometimes we set up our relationships like if it benefits us, then great. If it doesn't, then we'll push it away. But all of this is about our loves. I mean, the writer here is talking about how disordered his loves are. I tried this, it didn't work. I tried this, it was in vain. What Jesus does is Jesus is actually after more than your, our belief in him. Okay, the gospel's much more than you and me, okay, praying a prayer and having a belief structure, mental belief structure uh, that we, that we um, affiliate with Jesus. Jesus actually wants to transform us from the inside out. 
He wants to transform the things that we love and long for. He wants to reorder them. And, and that's the hard work of following Jesus, right? That is really what it gets down to. And so for me and you, when we ask the question, do I find full fulfillment? Am I beginning to see fulfillment and joy and satisfaction coming from knowing God and having a relationship with God and walking with God? Um, and it, we need to ask that question, do I have that? Because if we don't feel that, if we're not experiencing that, if not, we're not seeking that out, maybe our version of God is really small. Maybe our version of who God is and who Jesus is and what Jesus wants to do in us is really small. And the, the important thing behind this as we finish up is our relationship with God is covenantal. Meaning it's not a contract that God lays down his life. We talked about this a number of years ago when we talked about the passage uh, with Abraham and the covenant, that God actually walks through, okay, and he makes this covenant with us. And it's so powerful because God actually says, I am going to do the work that you were supposed to do to make this covenant happen. And God lays down his freedoms um, with Jesus on the cross. And God nails his freedoms down on the cross for us. God in Christ gives us the greatest sign of the covenant the world has ever seen, that he nails down uh, himself on a cross for you and me to go free. He abandons himself for you and I to be found. And I have... Uh, there's so much in me right now that is wondering how much I've missed. How much I've missed in my discipleship of Jesus. Because I have not allowed Jesus to totally reorder and retransform my loves and my longings. And so I want to close with this quote. I've been reading a book on Ecclesiastes called Recovering Eden. And Zach Eswine says this, he wants us to see how far from Eden we have come. Once it was enough for a man and a woman to have God and the good gifts that God gave, even if it meant that there was a tree and a fruit that existed, but not for them. Now, even though we are surrounded by opportunities to laugh or drink or work or make money, None of it is enough. We are not satisfied and death stomps on all of it. Even our marvelous moments of good work and good intimacy will one day become only a memory and then be gone forever in the world. Death did this to us. We did this to us. God let it be. He will have to take care of death and all that is flown from it. In time, the promised one will come, a cross will come, a tomb will, will empty, and death will die. And so I just want to pray for us today and encourage you to maybe ask yourself some hard questions. Ask yourself, what are the disordered loves in my life? 
uh, what are some things that are just warring against each other um, in me? And then how, how will I find rest and satisfaction in my relationship with God, the one who, who came and died for me to have a relationship with me? How will my vision of God expand? Let me pray for us. Father, this morning, we are left reading this list, this list of pleasure that many of us have, have attempted to uh, fulfill and, and seek in our life that the writer of Ecclesiastes has gotten to the end of the road on and found nothing. God, let this maybe for some of us be a warning you're headed to a dead end. We're headed to a bridge out. God, let this be, for some of us, encouragement to slow down, to stop our ambitious uh, pursuit of these things. God, let this be an invitation back. Let this be an invitation of reflection that we could see who you for who you are, that we could, instead of just becoming people that believe more and stronger and read more and think more, that you would actually be invited into our lives in such a deep and profound way to reorder the loves in our lives. God, for some of us, that has to do with money. And actually, for all of us, God, that has to do with money and what our finances are and how they drive us, how they, how they lead us to make decisions that aren't apprenticing you. God, show us these ways that we have pursued pleasure and missed you. Let this rattle around in us. God, I pray that it makes us uncomfortable. Will you do this in us? We pray these things in your name. Amen.